0: Hello everyone, I'm Deborah Augustin, New Narrative's Membership Engagement Manager. Last week, a senior Malaysian politician claimed to have the majority of support amongst members of parliament to form a new government. This comes as no surprise to Malaysians, who have watched helplessly as their politicians jump ship to other parties throughout the year. Some of these defections resulted in a coup that took place in February. You can read more about this in our explainer on the issue, which we'll link in our description. While Malaysia is no stranger to the phenomenon of party hopping, the constant shift in allegiances has led many Malaysians to feel like their mandate has been betrayed. Many are now calling for an anti-hopping law to be introduced as a solution to the political instability. On this week's episode, I speak to Professor Wong Chin Huat, a political scientist working on political institutions and group conflicts about the feasibility of an anti-hopping law in Malaysia. And the larger systemic issues that have led to these shifting political alliances. If you enjoy what we're doing, please consider signing up for a membership at newnarrative.com/join. Memberships start at fifty-two U.S. dollars a year, or just five U.S. dollars a month. You can also support us with a donation at newnarrative.com/donate. Hello, Dr. Wong Chin Hua. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Uh, thank you, Deborah. Thanks for having me. Uh, please just call me Chin Huan. Uh To everyone, I am a political scientist. I specialize in political institutions and group conflicts. In particular, I look into electoral system and party system. Uh, I have observed Malaysian politics for about 20 over years. And um, I find Malaysia problem, contrary to many of my compatriots thing is not that we are not united but rather we are not divided enough to have functional healthy productive division because in my view modern democracy multi-party democracy is premise on division you need good divisions for democracy to be possible and that's what we lack
0: Okay, that's a, that's a very interesting um, perspective, and I, I would really like to get into that. So, you know, it's been a tumultuous time politically in Malaysia. In February of this year, we saw a coup where members of parliament from the Pakatan Harapan government defected, which is popularly known in Malaysia as Hopping, and joined forces with the Barisan National Coalition and Padi Islam Sa Malaysia, or PAS, to form the Perikata National or National Alliance government. Then, in July, we had an announcement from Musa Aman that he had gained the majority of support in the Warisan-led Sabah State Assembly, which triggered SNAP elections. And then on September 23rd, we had an announcement from Anwar Ibrahim that he had the support to form a new government. So that's three major incidences of party hopping in this year alone. While a change of government in this manner at the federal level is unprecedented, it has happened at the state level before. So for non-Malaysians listening in, can you explain how the Malaysian parliament works, you know, the, the Westminster system?
1: Oh, this is a very interesting question. A Westminster parliament has four functions. Making laws, scrutinising the government, controlling government expenses, budgets, taxes, and finally, retaining or sacking the government. This is because that uh, under parliamentary system, we do not have a direct elections for the executive. Executive is indirectly elected by the parliament. And in most Westminster parliaments, this is facilitated by parties if a party win a majority of seats, then the leader would automatically become the prime minister. Nevertheless, the parliament can anytime bring down the government if it passes a vote of no confidence on the prime minister or defeat emotions of confidence by the prime minister or defeat a government's budget. So on any of these one of these three, the government can be brought down by the Parliament. So that's actually what it means by electoral college. When it started if you have uh, when, when after the elections, when the Parliament is convened, if you already have a majority, a Westminster Parliament normally do not do uh, a Westminster Parliament do not have an official voting process to elect the prime minister, unlike in Germany and Japan. So that's how it works. In Malaysia, after 2009, uh, a new method has been established. That means you do not need, if you want to sack the prime minister or chief minister at the state level, you do not need to pass uh, motions of no confidence. The lawmakers can actually bring their own can actually sign a statutory declaration announcing they have lost the confidence of the prime minister, chief minister, and therefore the government would collapse. So we have four methods. And in in Malaysia, the parliament and the state legislature have not been really functioning on the first three functions. It really doesn't pass any law because laws are drafted by the Attorney General's chamber, and when it's tabled to the House, until Pakatan Rakyat, the reformist government that was toppled in, feb- in February, came into power two years ago, we do not have select committee to scrutinize law. So whatever laws that pass by the government, uh, that tabled by the government in parliaments would almost automatically get passed. Uh, and because we don't have select committees, You do not have effective check and balance on the government. As a matter of fact, Malaysian parliamentarians meet only about less than 70 days in a year. Last year, it was 68 days. So, but most of the time, the parliamentarians, if you are not minister or deputy minister, you are actually, this is actually a part time job. Without any committees to organise you to force you to acquire some expertise and so on, and there's no forum for you to do this, parliamentarians' job really become constituency representative in soft in soft resolving uh, any local issues like uh, uh, any conflicts with the government agencies or bring in uh, or bringing in development to the constituency. So in other words the parliament, Malaysian parliament has been largely dysfunctional. Has been largely dysfunctional because they do not really have much role in national politics. All they do, their most important function, is to decide who to become Prime Minister after elections. And after that, if they have a chance to bring down the government, then they remain. In their function as the Prime Minister Electoral College. Relations parliament and legislatures, they're nothing compared to Congress in in the US or parliaments in countries like UK, Australia, and Canada, and so on. Because the parliamentarians, other than the government minister and deputy minister, have no n- not much of national or statewide roles to play. If you are government backbenchers, on those days that you do not attend parliament uh, or state legislature, you would be basically just entertaining your constituents to to represent them in dealing with local governments and so on if they have any issues or... a federal or state government agency, um, or to bring in whatever funding you can you can get from the government to your constituency, if you're opposition, then you would be deprived of even local the constituency allocations. So you have even less money. You try to do your services and so on. You try to criticize the government, but you really do not have much role to play. So that's actually the context of why we are seeing all this party hopping, because it is actually, it is, it's a bad position to be in opposition. You don't have meaningful role to play. Your job is actually to be, you, you run in elections so that you the hope that you can, you can, you can, uh, enthrone a government. And if you're lucky, you get to be minister or deputy minister. If right. you if you are just an opposition, then you don't have much role to play. And therefore people do not want to stay in opposition. And when they can, they try to jump over to the government side or bring down to the bring down the new government so that they can replace the current the, the incumbent government to be the new government.
0: Are there countries that also face this problem of defection on the scale that Malaysia does? Or the similarities.
1: India. India has India has uh, worse defection than uh, than Malaysia did uh, before they introduced anti-hopping law in mid 80s. In the 60s and 70s, that happened very frequently at both federal and state level, and you sometimes have one lawmaker jumping to jumping more than one times in a day.
0: Wow. Okay, so yeah, that's the solution that's often put forward in light of these incidents, so that Malaysia needs an anti-hopping party law. Is an anti-hopping law feasible in Malaysia?
1: For anti-hopping law to be introduced, you can introduce it at federal and state level. Now, the question is, the federal government in the past, and even until now, they have benefited from defection. So they it's not in their interest to introduce that. But more than that, the Malaysian Supreme Court had made a verdict in 1992 that even state-level anti-hopping law would be unconstitutional on the ground that anti-hopping law infringes the lawmakers' freedom of association. They cannot freely choose the party they want to be affiliated with. So... Until the federal government amend the constitutions or pass a law to reconcile this conflict, no state government, no matter how much they want, can effectively pass an anti-defection law. uh, One of the states, Penang, has done so in 2012. And after this year, when uh, a few state lawmakers, from PKR and BASATU switch their coalition, the state government threatened to use the provision to vacate the seats. But the general expectation is, if they really do it, the court will rule against them and declare the state-level anti-hopping law to be now and void for the same reason the court did in 1992.
0: Okay, so that's why they haven't, perhaps the Penang state government has not used that law.
1: Yes, but there are, there are, there are two more reasons that anti-hopping law wouldn't work in Malaysia. The first reason is merely concept, uh, is conceptually, but also very much context specifics. It has got to do with the fact that Malaysia has permanent collations. Permanent collation means that parties, would form collisions before elections and contest to, to put up only one candidates, one candidate in one constituency, sometimes under the same symbol, same party, same logo. And therefore, when you go to cast your vote on polling day, your vote could represent a mandate for three different entities: the candidate, the party and the coalitions this is much more different than say in other countries where you just have party and candidate so this is very different from other countries with first past the post system where a vote is is only uh, where where the mandate can only be for the party the candidates or both over here it can be for the candidate the party and the coalitions now, when you say a lawmaker jump, do you mean that he betrays his party or his coalition? If his party, if his or her party, decides to stay with the same coalition and he or she alone jump, then it's very clear-cut. It's just like in any other country. So we can then still use anti-hopping law to prevent it. But as what happened in February in Malaysia, the government collapsed. Because that one of the party, Bersatu, which was led by former, which was led by then the, the then Prime Minister Mahathir Muhammad, that party pulled out from the government, and followed by defections of, of eventually ten MPs from uh, from PKR led by Asmi. Now, if you're going to have anti-hopping law, you can only punish Asmin Camp, the 10 MPs in Asmin Camp. But you cannot punish Basatu because Basatu pulled out from the government. So what it means is that you can still have party hopping at a collective and not individual level, In, in the way Malaysians like to say, we call those. Uh, defectors, we call them frogs, political frogs. So anti-hopping law can only stop frogs that are on retail sale. If they are supplied on a wholesale basis, namely as a party, then anti-hopping law would not work. So you cannot punish people in the Sato. Of course, some people would say, why not we extend it on the coalition? But if you do so, you basically constrain not just the freedom associations of politicians. You are now restricting the freedom for parties. You basically force them into one singular party. And that can be much more problematic because there are reasons why you need to have give the room for parties to change their coalitions. So that is why it would not work. A lot of people who talk about wanting anti-hopping law in Malaysia, they basically look at foreign example without considering the different institutional contacts or electoral contacts between Malaysia and those countries like India.
0: Right. So it, effectively, in our current system, an anti-hopping law just wouldn't work because it doesn't completely get rid of the the systemic problem. It's it's possibly only going to take care of individual MPs jumping to another party, um, not if, like you said, as, as uh, if an entire party switch coalitions. So I, I guess that brings us to the ethical question, right? You know, is there, you know, what are the ethics of party hopping, you know, typically it's seen in a negative way. Um, As you mentioned earlier, it's seen, um, you know, that, that MPs or, you know, parties, they change sides to sort of enrich themselves or enrich their constituencies. You know, what are the ethics about around party hopping?
1: This is a very good question. We need to go back to the system design. If we have a presidential system, you have separate elections for the executive and the legislature. Therefore, you have strong check and balance between the two. In a parliamentary system, you have only one election. So the check and balance has to happen in the parliament. Now, if we look in that way, the idea of parliament is to make sure that executive... Does not have unchecked power to do whatever it pleases, then the preferred options would be to make sure a parliament that can always object to the government. Otherwise, democracy would be just elected dictatorship. Right. So how do you have this, how how do you have this happen? You have two options. One option is that you have many parties in the House and no party controls a simple majority, which means you have a hung parliament. That, in turn, would result in post-election coalition government or minority government. Such governments would be too weak to bulldozer whatever policy it wants and the population disagree with. Now, uh, the other option is to have few parties, can be as few as two in the parliament, and the government would have a simple majority. Now, if the government have a simple majority, what it means is that if all its MPs vote according to the party leaders want, the government can pass anything in the law, right? In the In the House. Correct. The government can pass any laws in the House, and whatever debates in the House will become, it becomes fatal because that um, you can debate, you can object, but at the end of the day, you'll be overruled. So that leads to the question if you have a simple majority government, if that's the tradition, that's a convention in your country politics, you should allow government backbenchers to reward against the government. To be defiant against the government right. without backbench reward, a simple majority government would means an elected dictatorship, and then whatever debate you see is merely for a show because they would not change the outcome. But for you to actually have that to happen, uh, like in 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 UK, for that to happen, for for backbenchers, for government backbenchers. To have the freedom to vote against the government, they need to be. They need to have the autonomy of getting their candidacy, because if the party if, if the party is so strong to can actually sack them, then um, they would not be able to do so. And that goes back to anti defection law. If we have an anti defection law to be effective it must be able to punish not just those who voluntarily quit their party, but also those who get sacked by the party. Because otherwise, if I want to betray, I just do not officially leave the party. I can stay and sabotage the party, and I keep my job. So for anti-hopping law to be effective, you must give the party the power to fire the parliamentary In India, the rule goes even further. The moment you vote against your party bids instruction, it would be considered as defecting the party and you would lose your job. So, so in India, the price of having def- anti-defection law is really rubber stamp parliament.
0: Right. So in our current system, is there a way to preserve the people's mandate? You know, people have voted thinking they're voting for this candidate, this coalition, um, and then, you know, party defections happen. Is there a way to preserve the people's mandate in this current system?
1: So how do we do it if you do not want to have anti-defection law, anti-hopping law? The solution is actually to introduce recall elections. Recall election is a vote an election for the voter to decide whether they want to sack the incumbent. You
0: know, if we, we thought about recall elections as a possible solution, where what would be the first step towards these reforms? Is it at the state or federal level?
1: You can have it at both levels, but uh, recall elections concern the qualification and disqualifications of lawmakers. So for both federal and state, it would be a matter of, if, uh, would be a matter stipulated or governed by the constitution and not ordinary laws. Which means to change the federal and state constitution, you need a two-third majority. You so need we w- cross-party consensus.
0: Right. So we would still need to amend the constitution to institute um, recall elections. Yes. So I think in you know the recent SNAP elections in Sabah, they were called by former Chief Minister Shafi Abdal as a way to return the mandate to the people after an incident of party hopping. However, the elections were held at a time when COVID 19 infections in Sabah were spiking. So, can elections at this time? really be seen as democratic when people may be reluctant to participate in an election due to health risks, And we did see a lower voter turnout in Sabah.
1: This can this can be an argument against having election at this time. But the low turnout in Sabah can also be due to voters' frustration. Either they think that it should not be called uh, because the government should actually, the, the legislature should just stay on, maybe with a new government, or they think that uh, even after elections, they do not have a control on who is going to form the government. So that can be the reason. But I want to bring to a more important question. Yeah. Can a fresh election resolve the problem of party defections? Sapa actually showed that it's not the case. Because while the ruling coalitions, which compete in three different blocks, pre National, Barisan National and Parti Bersatu Sabah, win a total majority of 38 out of 73 seats in the House. The two largest blocs, Perikatan National, led by Prime Minister Muhyiddin Basatu Party and Barisan National, led by Amnu, they were fighting over the Chief Minister. And they were thought that uh, either them or the third party Party, the Satu Sabah may actually join Shafi'i, the ousted chief minister, to come back. So you see, as long as we do not get move away from this idea of post election manipulation, deflections, then we get stuck. As long as people think that there is a chance for me to be a kingmaker, then why should I stop using that chance? Yeah. So it's not about having an election; it's about people accepting the election result.
0: Right. You know, we're talking about the systemic reasons for uh, why we have this, and part of that, it seems, is that Malaysia currently practices a first-past-the-post system, where voters vote for the candidate of their choice, and the candidate with the most number of votes wins. Um, but it's a little bit complicated in Malaysia, you said, because we also have coalitions that have to be formed before um, the election, right? So how does this first-past-the-post system add to the political instability we're seeing?
1: Uh, If the people are basically fixed with, if the voters have very clear-cut choices and politicians are loyal to their parties and their parties are loyal to their coalitions, then first-past-the-post can work. it may not be democratic because you end up having a very strong government and ineffective parliament, but you may not have political instability. The problem that we have today is that as long as the government have a simple majority and they use the power to control uh, their MPs, you have an unaccountable government because of a big parliament. But at the same time, because everyone wants to be in government and not in opposition, you have ongoing machinations to topple the government and install a new one. And this is very dangerous. It is dangerous right. because people feel that their words are pointless. If we, if we have constant political machinations, the problem is not just about um, uncertainty, The the... It's, it's not just about the impact on economy because people cannot make long-term decisions on what to do because they don't know what government policy to expect and so on. It's more than that. It can eventually lead people to question their viability and desirabilities of having a democracy. That one extreme example we can look at is the Weimar Republic in Germany after the First World War, 1919, before the rise of Nazi in 1933. In that 15 years, in the period of 15 years, they had 14 prime ministers. So what do you expect people to have confidence in that? So when when Hitler grabbed power, The public was actually quite tired to organize uh, any strong protests. Because people get tired of parties fighting among themselves. And the reason why we have political stability in Germany today, despite their parliament has always been Hung Parliament, their government has always been coalition government, is because German recognize the fact that if you want to be democracy you want to be a functioning democracy, you must have strong party. Strong party in the sense that they are cohesive. They act in one direction. They are bind together they are bound together by their belief, their ideas, their programs, their policies, and so on. So and and this doesn't mean that parties are controlled by just the leaders. They have a wide range of opinion, but they are cohesive because the parties know how to deal with this. And you, in in country of like Germany, you do not have defections, even though they do not have anti defection law. You do not have the problem what we have in Malaysia or India. Both for the party list and also for their first possible MP, people stay where they are because uh, the party support base are relatively stable and they don't move according to personalities. This is very different if you look at Sabah. In Sabah, you have 18 uh, out of the previous 60 lawmakers who have switched their parties and recontest again under different parties or as independents. And you have more than 10 of them get re-elected and some with very strong majority. What it means is that people vote on personalities. And that's what it means by parties are weak. Because even though party leaders can control uh, their supporters, yeah, they control their politicians, but ultimately they cannot command solid and consistent support from voters. Voters will just move away.
0: Yeah, so you do see politics driven by personality in Malaysia quite a bit. It's not unique to Sabah. You see it in the peninsula, you see it at the federal level. Uh, people follow a personality rather than a, uh, than a party. And and I think, yeah, what you're saying is basically that Malaysian parties aren't formed around a strong um, set of ideology. Uh, in the case, as, well, perhaps m- some parties have a clearer ideological stance. For example, yeah. um, Bersatu, and AMNO are very clearly Malay nationalist parties and, you know, the, the ideology there is clearer. But, you know, for, for example, something like Parti Keadilan Rakyat at the federal level or even, even at the state level, um, their party ideology is less clear to supporters and it's more driven by personality.
1: I like to defer a bit. Uh, okay. not on the PKR part, which I will come to, but on AMNO and Basatu, both are Malay Nationalist Party. But you'll find that these are the two parties that keep on jumping, switching side. In Sabah, uh, they used to have 17 MPs, sorry, 17 state assembly person, and I think eight MPs, uh, from AMNO. And with less than a year after the last election, The number was dropped to one MP and one state assembly person. So they jumped, despite having uh, sort of a clear-cut ideology. Why so? Because this party, notwithstanding the ideology they put on, this is not how they command the support on the ground. They command the support on the ground based on largely a combination of communal sentiments and patronage. So that makes it very easy for lawmakers to switch. As long as the lawmakers can bring more pork, this is an American term, pork barrel, to their constituency, uh, the voters may not mind. So these two parties are still weak. And of course, PKR is even weaker because PKR does not have a clear ideology. A friend of mine very cheekily defined PKR as a bunch of independents sharing the same party symbol. In some sense, that's not too far from the truth. So you're looking at parties that actually are cohesive and that can hold on to its ground. We're basically looking at only two parties. In the longer run, one is past. It has God as its guarantor to seal the party's supporters and the politicians' loyalty. And the other is DAP, uh, which count on, counts on its support mainly from the non-Malays, and especially the Chinese, and the Liberals. So these two parties have clearly defined ground. They still suffer, uh, DAP still suffer defections from time to time, but largely it's a very disciplined groups. All other parties are vulnerable to defections because all they have, the strength that what we have seen before 2018, is the strength of party leaders using patronage and power to control other politicians. Uh, Not really strong in the sense of uh, well-defined support from the ground.
0: So, do you think reforming or revising the electoral system In any way could put a stop to these kinds of party defections?
1: Yes, but we have to be very clear, there's no perfect electoral system. In choosing electoral system, we are actually choosing what kind of defects that we are willing to endure. So we must not think that because first possible has so many problems, then we can find a perfect system. No. You always trade in one set of problems with another set of problems. Having said that, I believe Malaysia should move away from first past the post because with first past the post, uh, with the ethnic structure, we cannot even achieve a two-party system as you have in UK, which allows two very important features. One is bottom-up candidacy selection, meaning that party grassroots can actually select their MPs. You select the candidates and therefore giving the MPs a little bit more autonomy than otherwise. And second, as an outcome of that, uh, the possibilities of that bench reward, which prevent a simple majority government to become an elected dictatorship. In Malaysia, if we have keep a first class with with coalition politics, with stability that's what we have. A overly powerful executive and and important parliament.
0: So 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 to so to, you know, maybe reform this current system, we would have to see voters have a greater say in who becomes the candidate in their area. Because as it stands in Malaysia, often the candidates don't even live in the area that they're elected to. And then, you know, that allowing backbenchers to to actually have some diversity of opinion um, would improve the current system.
1: Yes. Uh, To sum it up, the reform really is professionalization of politics. Malaysians have, most Malaysians have very negative idea of politics. You ask them, uh, do you think politics is dirty? Yes. Do you think it's dangerous? Yes. Because in the past, you get involved in politics, you probably get into jail. Uh, you think politics is difficult to understand? Yes. So what it means is that these people who say yes on all these trade, they think politics is a trading job. So we need MPs to be full-time, that they have to play a role in the parliament, they have a real role to play, so they no longer just depend on constituency allocations, on development to please their voters. So the better option that I would suggest is to introduce new constituency that based on uh, party list. So these MPs cannot jump to other parties. They are elected on the party basis, and when party choose these people, because they have no constituency to serve, they should really make sure that these people can argue. Uh, they, are, they are strong in policy and programs and issues that Parliament become much more effective. And then those who are the remaining MPs who are elected through first pass polls we need to have recall elections so that if they jump to another party, then uh, they may have to face the music from the voters. So we are talking about two reform at the same time. On one hand, is parliamentary reform to make to enable more effective check and balance by giving parliamentarians full time job, even if they are not minister and deputy minister. Everyone has something to do, and therefore they take the job seriously and not thinking that they are just a voting machine uh, and who can be kingmaker if their luck is good, if the opportunity comes for them to be richer. So what we need is really to sum it up, we need institutional reform that fix our elections and our parliament.
0: Okay, um, Anwar Ibrahim is you know, of one of the personalities in Malaysian politics. Um, and last week he claimed to have the majority of support amongst members of parliament to form a new government. However, he still has not announced this list of supporters and has yet to form a government. How does Anwar's announcement differ from the Sheraton move in February that saw the formation of the Perikata national government?
1: The big difference, the, the single difference between Anwar's claim to have the number for a counter coup and the Sheraton move is that Sheraton move worked, while Anwar did not. All his claim uh, of the numbers remain words until now after a week and it's unlikely that he would actually have the number now that uh, the Muhyiddin coalition has won even the Sabah state government. And what also could happen is this, that if he managed to get the number to the king, the king and Muhyiddin may still request for dissolution, and the king may or may not agree. If the our third prime minister request for dissolution is granted the royal consent, you would have fresh elections. And there's no guarantee that Anwar actually get the chance to be the prime minister. So his plan to become prime minister count on two things. First, that he has the number, a strong majority. Second, uh, either the strong majority deter Muhidin from asking a fresh elections or uh, uh, convince the king not to give royal consent for dissolution, which I do not think the chance is high.
0: In terms of uh, party defections, do you think we've seen the last of it for this year at least?
1: We still have three more months to go, and anything could have happened because you could. As long as people believe in gambling, it's very hard for you to stop them from putting bet, And that's actually a deep cultural problem in a deep problem in Malaysian political culture. Our politicians want to maximize their gain. So they think like gambler, believing their luck would always be good next round, even though their luck have been bad all this while. That they should think like insurance buyer when they are in power, they should Make sure the pol- opposition can survive, so that when they themselves are out of power, they would not be. They would not lose everything. Now, the problem what we have the the ultimate the ultimately, the political instability Malaysians are suffering is because of this winner takes all mentality. Everyone think that uh, is is a do or die battle. I want to win everything, and the loser would have nothing left, and so they go all out. they they gambler as if there's no tomorrow.
0: Yeah, there's a bit of punishment politics at at play as well in our system in that, yeah, as you said, um, once you go into the opposition, you find yourself with less resources. And so there's no incentive to work on the other side.
1: Yes, yes. And actually what happens is when you punish your opposition, you deny them a fair chance to come back Next, in the next election, they become very nasty and, and, and destructive. Because since I have nothing to win, then why should I actually play ball with you in a civil, rational manner? Why should I think about policy? All I need to do is to attack you on everything. And being in government, of course, you find yourself constrained with a lot of limitations. You do not have as many choices when you're in opposition because you now have to be responsible. And that open yourself to attacks from opposition. And so really to treat opposition well is not being kind to your enemy. It's, to being, it's being kind to yourself.
0: Um, I think that's all the time we have for today. So thank you very much, Chin for joining me today and and giving me this insight into what we could possibly reform to see a healthier politics in Malaysia. Thanks. Our thanks to Chin for taking the time to talk to us on this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches. Don't forget to tune in next week for Political Agenda, our series on current affairs in Singapore. This is Deborah, wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Take care.